We never want to put our blinders on when we're taking care of these patients. All of the different ways in which hematology and gynecology intersect, there are hematologic and gynecologic causes of bleeding, and that one patient can have more than one cause. I'm fortunate to be at a place where we do have that ability to work with the hematologists that are in our pregnancy hematology clinic. Hemostasis Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Takeda. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organization or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to hemostasisoncore2end.com. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast, where we will be talking about gynecologic considerations and women and girls who have a underlying bleeding disorder. My name is Sarah O'Brien. I am a pediatric hematologist. I work at Nationwide Children's Hospital, which is in Columbus, Ohio, in the United States. And I work in a multidisciplinary clinic for girls and women with underlying bleeding disorders. And I also serve as the hematologist for our teen and pregnant clinic here at the hospital. I'm joined today with Dr. Homa Amadzia. And can you please introduce yourself, Homa? Sure. My name is Homa Amadzia, and I'm a maternal fetal medicine physician at George Washington University. And I uh, co-run the pregnancy hematology clinic that we have for women either with preconception, pregnancy issues, or postpartum concerns. And I also have an interest in women with lean disorders from a research perspective and looking at tranexamic acid for prevention of postpartum hemorrhage. So I'm so delighted to be here with you today, Sarah. In this episode, you and I will be discussing the two sides of the coin regarding women with bleeding disorders. These patients may have uterine bleeding due to their bleeding disorder, but there also can be gynecologic causes for heavy bleeding. So Sarah, can you first share your thoughts on what my colleagues in obstetrics and gynecology should be aware of? How can we recognize a bleeding disorder in our patients? So I think that gynecologists are so good at recognizing heavy menstrual bleeding. It's something that you do frequently in your practice. So I find that my gynecology colleagues are very familiar with the signs to watch out for, such as patients who are consistently having more than seven days of bleeding with their menses, patients who are consistently soaking through products in less than one or two hours, and patients who pass a lot of large clots. I think those are the commonly known warning signs. I think where there's more of a knowledge gap is once you have a patient with heavy menstrual bleeding, what are clues within that menstrual history that could signify a higher risk of an underlying bleeding disorder? So for that, I think of items such as, did the patient have heavy menstrual bleeding since menarche? So that is one question that we ask. Have they had iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia as a result of their heavy menses? A big clue for the gynecologist should be if the patient's not responding to the therapies that you typically use. That would be another red flag for a possible bleeding disorder. And then finally, if the patient has other bleeding symptoms, such as a history of nosebleeds or a history of bleeding with surgery, or if there's a family history of bleeding, those would all be clues for me that there might be an underlying bleeding disorder. One of the things I wanted to talk with you about today, Homa, was that as a hematologist, when I'm taking care of patients with heavy menstrual bleeding, I always have bleeding disorders at the top of my mind because that's my area of specialty. 
But I know that many of the patients referred to me with heavy menstrual bleeding will turn out not to have a bleeding disorder. And I also know that my patients with bleeding disorders can also have a gynecologic cause for their bleeding. So can we flip the coin a little bit? And can you tell me when you're seeing a patient with heavy menstrual bleeding, what are the clues for you that there may be gynecologic or or non-hematology pathology going on? Yeah, thanks for that question. So I often will ask them a little bit more in terms of the frequency of the bleeding patterns and is it associated with menses, uh, in between menses. I will characterize a little bit more in terms of how much they're using the pads, for example, or tampons and frequency. I think that will definitely help to evaluate and then get imaging to additionally help to further sort out, is this a gynecologic cause? Often we rely on ultrasound as a first imaging modality to look at things in the uterine cavity that might be a source like fibroids, which are really common um, in women. Sometimes there's a family history, sometimes there's no family history, and women often aren't very symptomatic except for heavy menses. Other clues on ultrasound you might see is if they have enlarged cysts, which could be related to endometriosis or endometriomas. And sometimes those can present with heavy or sometimes painful cycles or dysmenorrhea. Other uterine anomalies, which are a little bit more advanced in terms of imaging modalities, like either MRI or saline infused sonohistograms, would be looking for things like endometrial polyps, um, which can also cause irregular or heavy bleeding at times. So those are some of the suggestions. Have you had patients in your practice that you can recall that, that had a bleeding disorder and a gynecologic issue going on at the same time? That's a, a great question. I, I can think of one case that she didn't quite have that specific combination of conditions, but that she was worked up for a bleeding disorder because she presented so early. It was an adolescent in my training in residency, and she had been worked up for a bleeding disorder, was found not to have that, but was refractory to medical therapy. And so despite being on oral contraceptives and additional therapies, she ultimately needed surgical management and had a uterine hysteroscopic resection of a, a myoma um, and had definitive management with that. So I think that's a good good teaching point for me because I know sometimes our hematology workups can take a really long time to complete, especially if we're looking for some of those more rare disorders. So for me, that's a good example of if someone's really refractory to medical management, you know, don't delay the gynecology referral till we get all of our labs done. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and you gave so many good clues on what to look for um, early on. I, I wanted to say that was really helpful. And I think for me, I can think of one or two examples where I've had patients that had an established bleeding disorder and were experiencing heavy menstrual bleeding. And we prescribed oral contraceptives and it helped with their heavy menstrual bleeding but it didn't help with their dysmenorrhea at all. And actually when I saw this patient in follow-up, her dysmenorrhea was even getting worse. And so I sent her to my gynecology colleague and it turned out that she also had endometriosis. And I think one of the, one of the things I tell my families a lot, because sometimes families will present to me and say they don't have any family history of bleeding, but they have a very strong family history of endometriosis, which for us can sometimes be a clue that there is an underlying bleeding disorder in the family. Yeah, that's that's very true. And speaking of specific bleeding disorders and what I think of in pregnancy or postpartum, one thing I pay particular attention to, for example, women who might have von Willebrand disease, is how is their bleeding profile in the first week or two weeks postpartum? Because sometimes they might not have a hemorrhage right at delivery, but 
often the factors are going a lot lower at that time period. So I don't want to have a routine six-week follow-up for them. I kind of want to think of them a little bit more closely in surveillance and give them more guidance about what's normal bleeding postpartum. So Sarah, when I have a patient with a gynecologic disease, for example, like endometriosis, who also has a bleeding disorder, is there anything I should be particularly aware of in my treatment plan? So I think of that on two levels. How can we help with the medical management? And then how can we help with the surgical management? So I would say with the management of the bleeding, certainly the hormonal therapies that you are using are going to be the first line of of treatment for that patient. But sometimes we can be helpful from the hematology side by adding adjunctive therapies. So for some patients, that might be an antifibrinolytic like tranexamic acid. For some of our patients with severe bleeding disorders, they may also need factor replacement to manage reproductive bleeding. And then we also want to be involved in any surgical procedures. For for example, I know that even to diagnose endometriosis involves going to the operating room to, to take a look under anesthesia. And we want to make sure that we're involved so that we can help prevent any excessive bleeding during or after the procedure. So again, that's often a time when we'll recommend an antifibrinolytic during that time. And then I think the last thing is as hematologists, we're always talking about iron deficiency and looking to make sure that all of our patients with reproductive bleeding are at risk for iron deficiency and anemia. So always looking for that as well. What would you add from the gynecologic perspective for management of a, of a patient with endometriosis and a bleeding disorder? Yeah, I think an interesting point comes up here when we're thinking, especially about adolescent uh, women who are, you know, get the diagnosis sometimes early for a bleeding disorder, is a general reluctance from sometimes obstetric gynecology community or even hematology community to consider oral contraceptive therapy, even though it's not the primary reason for the medical management, it can have huge secondary benefits. And I think that's what's key to stress is that it's a secondary benefit. And I know some patients or or providers, if ultimately they're not comfortable, then certainly don't forget about tranexamic acid as an alternative. I think having no therapy is as unfortunate if and will likely lead to patients coming back into the emergency room with an, you know, a severely anemic and needing transfusions. So that I think is what I would think of. And I think you made such a great point there about the iron deficiency anemia and not only thinking about it where I think of often about it in pregnancy, but sort of preconception or when they're managing, you know, for their fibroids or other conditions, how do we optimize women really to get into a pregnancy with maximal iron stores? Absolutely. I would say two of the concerns I hear a lot from families when I'm talking about hormonal therapy for a young adolescent are they're worried that it's going to cause infertility to be on a hormonal medication at that young age. The other concern I hear a lot is that it will increase their risk of breast cancer. Can you talk about those concerns from families? Yeah, sure. No, that concern about infertility is is not really shown to be true in the evidence that we have lots of women who are on either oral contraceptives or IUDs. And I hear that concern as well. Sometimes it can affect your cycles where after you come off the therapy, they can be a little bit irregular in that time period, but it has not really been proven to impact long-term fertility. The breast cancer risk, I think, is something what I would pay attention if they had a strong family history, for example, maybe a breast cancer. But when we're talking about risk benefit balances of a therapy that will prevent someone to be severely anemic and maybe enter depression and 
you know, have life altering kind of situations. And if you're talking for a year or two of therapy, that is not going to increase dramatically the risk of, of any kind of breast cancer risk from that perspective. And I find that families are actually often unaware of the potential protection against other types of female cancer, such as endometrial cancer with contraception use. Yeah, very great point. I think also when you were talking about oral contraceptive, it, it also reminded me another common issue I see is if somebody's seen a gynecologist who maybe doesn't have a lot of familiarity with adolescents or taking care of patients with bleeding disorders, Sometimes the patient will come to me and they're on an extremely low dose of an oral contraceptive and they're still bleeding. And the family thinks that they have failed this therapy. And a lot of times what we can do is just look at what they're on and adjust it to what I would consider a standard dose. I make sure to tell the family we're not using a high dose, we're using the, the standard dose. And often a change like that can really help improve bleeding. Do you see that ever? Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that you're going to find in the general community, people do have different levels of comfort, right? And so when they think, you know, if they're not used to seeing adolescents, they think they might just have to adjust their standard dose to accommodate for that patient population and that difference in terms of body size. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, if that is happening. And I think having more resources, like for example, this podcast and more professionals like yourself who are very comfortable, even with the gynecology kind of adjustments will help the general population. So I think our conversation so far has, has talked about all the different ways that our specialties collaborate. Can you talk a little bit about how this plays out for you in your daily practice in terms of your collaboration with other specialties? Yeah, I think this is really critical. I'm, I'm fortunate to be at a place where we do have that ability to work with the hematologists that are in our pregnancy hematology clinic, where if I see women either preconception or during pregnancy or postpartum, where we need to ask for support to, you know, which diagnostic tests would we do as follow-up or if they have something abnormal, what should they do and consider for their future? And then in addition, I think the hematologist is a critical part to this, but often in pregnancies, we look to the OB anesthesiologists and transfusion medicine specialists to kind of have this really multidisciplinary approach to considerations around like epidural at the time of delivery. Are they candidates? Are they, you know, what thresholds do we want to be above for certain factors for their candidacy for that? I think those are very common questions. And some patients and, and future moms have really strong opinions about it, that they do or don't want it and how do we support them in that? And so I think that it's extremely critical to work with the team. Yeah, I'm also fortunate to be able to work in a multidisciplinary clinic. Our clinic includes a hematologist and an adolescent medicine specialist, but we also have at our children's hospital a fantastic group of pediatric adolescent gynecologists who have become really well-versed in taking care of our patients, which is just wonderful. I think another thing I appreciate from my gynecologist, not all patients are followed in our multidisciplinary clinic. If they're following along with me and a gynecologist, Sometimes our gynecologists are so excellent at managing their heavy menstrual bleeding that they forget that they have a bleeding disorder. So I really appreciate that my colleagues remind them to come to their annual visit with me. And that's important so that I, as their hematologist, can continue to be involved in their medical care, be familiar with what's going on so that when things come up like dental procedures or surgical procedures, we're not rushing to get them in for surgical clearance. I know them well, and we just make a plan right from there without needing an extra visit. And then certainly 
They Families will also reach out to me later in, in life with their first pregnancy, and I'm able to help them to get them connected to the appropriate resources for that planning. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I think from one thing I forgot to mention earlier with the iron deficiency, we often work with our hematology colleagues too, because the trans the infusions do happen through our hematology department when we have women who are pregnant and have iron deficiency. So that's a critical part to this. And I will say, I think having that maximized preconception and during pregnancy is is so important, not only for the mom, but also for the growing fetus and, and future newborn. You know, one thing you, you just talked a little bit about, Sarah, I wonder if you can expand upon it, is what should I be aware of in women with bleeding disorders who need gynecologic surgery specifically? Sure. So many of our recommendations will apply kind of across the board to women with a variety of bleeding disorders. As I mentioned earlier, we'll often recommend an antifibrinolytic before the surgery and after the surgery for a specified time period, depending on the risk of bleeding with that particular procedure. Um, for some of our patients, we may also want to use Desmopressin for our Von Willebrand patients. Um, some of our Von Willebrand patients or hemophilia patients may need factor replacement as well for the procedure. We'll sometimes recommend overnight observation as well, even if it's not a procedure that would normally require that. I can think of a patient this week having a gynecology procedure that the gynecologist and I agreed because of the patient's distance from the hospital it just made a lot more sense for her to spend the night on our service and, and send her home the, the next day. And then we also have a large population of patients who have bleeding due to joint hypermobility. And they're a little bit different because they can also have issues with wound healing. So I make sure that my surgical colleagues are aware of those issues as well. And so they may want to proceed differently in terms with how they're placing stitches or how they're following along with the stitches and other considerations. Yeah, those are great tips. Thanks. So this has been a great discussion today, Homa. Thank you so much. I'm trying to think of some of our takeaways from the discussion. I think for me, the, the items that were highlighted is, is just all of the different ways in which hematology and gynecology intersect, that there are hematologic and gynecologic causes of bleeding, and that one patient can have more than one cause. So we never want to put our blinders on when we're taking care of these patients. And I think just the importance of ongoing collaboration, both within the clinic setting and also outside of our multidisciplinary clinics to, to provide the best care for these patients. Yeah, I agree with you and so valuable. I guess one thing reflecting, I, I said this before, but I think the iron deficiency across a lifespan, you know, when we're thinking even from adolescence to young adulthood to later in life and being proactive about management and, and therapy can be so critical if people aren't responding to oral, for example, going to IV iron and considering it in pregnant women. And I will refer to the other podcasts we have about that for more information for those listeners who want details. It was so great. Thanks, Sarah. It was great to talk with you today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You as well. This Hemostasis Connect podcast was brought to you by CourtoEd Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit courtoed.com and select Hemostasis.